Welcome to another episode of History's Mysteries Podcast. Today we'll be discussing the murders of Jack the Ripper. My name is Brandon Scudder, and my co-hosts are Trinity, Michelle, and Jared. On August 31st, 1888, a man named Charles Cross was leaving his home at 3.30 in the morning, headed to work on this very dreary night. During his commute, he happened to notice a dark bundle across the street. Unbeknownst to him, though, this dark figure was not a discarded trash, but a woman named Mary Nichols. Mary's lifeless body was still warm, but her throat had been cut to the point of near decapitation. Not only was Mary the first victim of Jack the Ripper, but the first of five grisly and gut-wrenchingly brutal murders occurring in London, and possibly even more in America. But who, were, who was behind these twisted killings? Let's find out. So, with that chilling tale from Brennan, um, we hope to set the stage before we jump into what Jack the Ripper did and who he possibly could have been. So the killing spree took place in East End, London, between 1888 and 1889. And it's important that we understand that Jack the Ripper wasn't just the person who was murdering these people. It was also the place that these murders were taking place. Everyone in London knew that this part of town was split in two. It was the West End and the East End. And the East End was super infamous for being like extremely overcrowded, Um, the infant mortality rate was high, the overall death rate was really high, it was noisy, and disease was um, afflicting a lot of the inhabitants, and as well as just, yeah, just being extremely dirty. Um, And this is where an author named Jack London comes in. Um, Before Jack London, and a little bit afterwards too, there were a lot of what the author Kevin Swafford, he wrote Among the Disposable Jack London in the East End of London. Um, These urban explorers would go to East End because they would hear all of these rumors and they wanted to figure out like what was going on, you know, like why were so many people impoverished? Like, and what, what is it about this place that makes it so bad? They wanted to figure out like what it was about, right? Yeah, because there was a lot of like financial separation between this, these two sides of town, you know, the rich people were the rich, the poor people were the poor. And there was such a big like difference between how these lives were lived, you know? And it was just such, I feel like that is a big reflection of the society that, I mean, that it was back in, you know, the late, late 1800s, I mean, and especially in London, you know, in such a big city that was growing, you know, in the Industrial Revolution. I mean, not, I mean, during that time, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what was going on between the West End and the East End. The West End um, was the wealthier side and the East End was the poorer side. Um, and it was because of the Industrial Re- Revolution that was creating the working class of people. Um, Jack London, he says that... Um, you know, he places the blame on systemic forces of capitalism and class culture as it was for the first time breaking out in London and kind of like in the world as well. Um, He says that these urban explorers, like they were really obsessed about like the dirtiness of the place and kind of like the crime that was going on, the lawlessness and the people and how I guess degraded that they had become. And this was all working towards the benefit of the West End because if they ostracize an entire town of people, they can enjoy the benefits of industrial revolution all to themselves while the East End gets left behind in the dust. Yeah, but that's kind of, I mean, looking back at the history books, that's how it kind of happened. It really was, I mean, you know, the poor became poor and the rich became richer and then there was that weird in-between middle class, but... It also kind of took a lot to be in that middle class, and so the poor just kept on getting, the situations kept on getting worse and worse for them, and there was really nothing they could do about it because, I mean, once once you're kind of in that situation, a lot of times it's just really difficult to dig yourself out of that hole, and, you know, and, I mean, that's what they were living with, like, every single day, and it really was an awful situation for them. Yeah, no, that's a really good point that you raise about the new working class. Like, the this is basically just a new class of entrepreneurs and business people who are trying to get onto the level of the aristocracy because before it was just the nobles and the peasants, right? Yeah. But now it's like these entrepreneurs, these merchants who um, didn't really have much status or prestige in society 
um, they are now because they have the money to back that up. They can buy all of these different things for luxury and also to set themselves up and kind of build like these mini empires with their factories, mm-hmm. right? Because and it, it kind of is an empire in a way, yeah. right? Because they have all of their people doing their work for them. It's just a different, it's more machinated, I guess. Yeah. It's more, I guess, in the factory instead of being in the fields. fields. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it makes a lot more, yeah. And, that new growing middle class, it really was, it really did change society, at least especially in London during the time, since they, since London since was was one of the mass producers of the time. Um, you know, they I think they were like one of the largest for steel implants, at the, I believe it was steel exports at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, definitely this new, this new class definitely complicated things and definitely made the separation between these groups even wider and made this thing so much more difficult. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when Jack London first went to East End, this was in 1902, um, he has a quote that he had written to someone about his, I guess, research and field study. He had said, I've heard of God's country, but this country is the country that God has forgotten he forgot. I've read of misery and seen a bit, but this beats anything I could even have imagined. I think I should die if I had to live two years in the East End of London. And, you know, he talks about, like, the unhumanness. That's how he says it in his book. That's how he writes it. Mm-hmm. Um, that in the eyes of all of these residents and, you know, like, all of the factory, all of the industrialism, that was all happening in West End. In East End, there was no such thing. Yeah. Um, all of the housing, um, I would actually like to get into one of the acts that, they had, that the parliament had tried to pass in 1875. It's called the Artisans and Laborers Dwelling Act. Um, so their attempt to kind of help East End out and kind of get them to catch up with the West End was to kind of pretty up the buildings. So the act was people can purchase any building that they wanted in East End, destroy it, and then rebuild an entirely new building in its place. And obviously that would be very costly and it would require a high rent from the tenants to compensate for that construction and also turn a profit from them um and that ended up being a huge mistake like ironically it made poverty even worse because that meant less buildings that were free for these people to go into and have like just a place to rest their head for Mm -hmm. the night and that was a lot of the cases um for the citizens of east end but it also led to more overcrowding because they're migrating to the other lodging houses um, for for cheaper rent. Also, there was this really interesting thing that they had to afford for to give to people for free, where they would have two posts, and in between it, they would have a rope strung straight, and people would lean on it, and that was how they slept. Can you imagine no. sleeping on a rope for a night? That sounds terrible. I I think it's really funny that they were like the West End was like going to visit sort of like mm-hmm. it was a tourist attraction. Like poor people are not tourist attractions. Yeah. Are you going it's... there to give them money, support any businesses they have? No, mm-hmm. you're just gonna look at them. It's almost yep. almost dehumanizing. You know, it's a kind of like yeah. like like animals in a cage. Kind of like oh, look at them. I'm gonna go look look at like that. This awful situation, but I'm not gonna do anything to help it or you know yeah. do anything better. Which I think provided Jack the Ripper with such an easy target because these people were, I mean, not seen as human by a lot of these upper class people, you know? So it kind of gave him, you guess, easy pickings, I guess you could say. I mean, especially the people he chose, you know, were primarily prostitutes during time, which was often, very often looked down upon because of the religious society. But um, yeah, I think that really does play a big role in why Jack the Ripper specifically targeted the people in um, East End. Yeah, um, and it's also a marker of privilege, too, for a lot of these so-called urban explorers. Um, going into East End and looking at all of these people like a zoo, yeah. um, and then going back to West End and then telling all these crazy stories like, oh my God, did you, like it stank to high heaven and it's totally this abysmal and miserable place and all of these people like just run around the streets like starting fights or they're in a drunken stupor and all that stuff. And it's just like they don't understand that they have a home to go back to to criticize these people who are still living those lives for real, like they're still suffering. And, um, you know, going back to the the act that the parliament tried to um, pass, 
um, the, it was an obvious failure and it kind of cemented the fact among the wealthy that any venture, um, I guess, approached in East End to try to help them out and make things better is a waste. Um, and they already, you know, they already had a distaste for poor people. They didn't want to get involved with it. But because um, people buying these buildings and trying to sell them to people or, you know, rent them out to people failed, like, um, that was just like a, yeah, like, they, they can't help themselves. So why why should we bother yeah. kind of a thing? Um, I also wanted to get into, yes, so... We keep talking about the housing, and I want to talk about it just because it's a perfect example of how British society treated the citizens of East End with disdain and mistrust. So lodging houses, as we know, are a cheap place, uh, but they also have a poor reputation among the police. Um, There is such a thing called the double-dos beds. So at first there are the single beds Mm -hmm. where one person can sleep in, and then there are the bigger ones where two people can Um, for double the price and um, the rule they had a lot of rules in place too. the police like they didn't like what was happening in the east end they think everything that was happening there was immoral so they tried to prevent these immoral acts from happening right as we know with the prostitution that was happening in east end Um, there was one interesting case where a police magistrate, Montague Williams, brushed off a case where a woman, Mary McCarthy, stabbed a deputy of the well-known Spitalfields Lodging House, Anne Neeson. And Spitalfields, I believe, was near Whitechapel, Mm -hmm. where Jack the Ripper was conducting, was, well, I guess hunting would be the better word. Yeah, Uh, yeah, conducting his business. No. (laughs) He was just a little businessman. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. No, no. (laughs) But um, he turned away the trial for, you know, trying to arrest and imprison Mary McCarthy because it happened in Spitalfields and he knew that double-dos beds were being rented out to men and women and women and men were not supposed to sleep with each other in double-dos beds because they they would they were operating on the idea that every single time a man, man and a woman rented a double-dos bed, it was because the woman was a prostitute and that was part of the business transaction, yeah, I mean, to put it lightly. And seeing that's highly immoral at the time as well, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, he just brushed it off. And, you know, that just goes into Jack the Ripper um, and why he was even hunting in East End in the first place, which, Jared, if I could hand it off to you and what what the murders were, who the victims were, and how they had happened. Uh, Yes. The murders... It was actually quite an interesting tale, actually. I actually discovered that there are some murders that they don't consider to be of Jack the Ripper, but highly suspected of being Jack the Ripper's. The first one, which was uh, Martha Tabram, which is not the official first victim, but is very possible of being his first victim, which happened on August 7th, 1888. Mm-hmm. And like I've said, there's much debate. People have gone back and forth. Nothing's been confirmed yet. Might not never be confirmed. We really, it's all up to any uh, current forensic science and anything like that. Um, her body was found on the first floor landing of the George Yard buildings at 5 a.m. And then just a, um, not even a full month after that, Mary Nichols, the first confirmed victim of Jack the Ripper, was uh, killed, murdered on August 31st of 1888 and as Brennan had described earlier her neck was cut so badly that it was almost a deca- uh, decapitation and uh, she was found at 3:40 a.m. on the uh, gateway at Bucks Row Whitechapel the first of you know the Whitechapel murders mm-hmm. um, Anne Chapman was the next one to fall her death happening on September 8th 1888 um, she was found in the backyard of the number 29 Hanbury Street at 6 a.m. And Jack the Ripper had a thing, of course, how to get away with a good murder. Do it in the morning when nobody's really awake. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's how he was never really found in the first place because in during those times, cops weren't really on patrol because most of them were probably sleeping. Nobody <laughs> was really a good witness because, again, most of them were sleeping. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, Ann Chapman had, was horrifically mutilated by the killer 
in which the killer had stolen her womb. Not sure why killers have a thing about removing body organs, but just kind of a, a, I guess, their trademark staple, I guess, to distinguish him from other murderers of history. Yeah, I mean, do you guys, like, when you hear about these intestines being removed, like, what what does that cut your mind to think about, like, as far as, you know, why a person would do that? I think a lot of times there may be deeper reasons, but when I think about it personally, I think it's for the pure reason of brutality, you know, when they're already doing something so grim. I mean, my, I mean, they are, they're already going so far, might as well take it a little bit further kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my, they just like a little fun little thing. Like, it's we like know, a trophy. Yeah. We're, we know there are, like, the common thing is that they like taking trophies with them. Mm-hmm. So I guess organs is just a, a fun little trophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't thought, think so, but. <laughs> my thought was that it could sell it on the black market because mm-hmm. even in today's society, the people still do that on the black market and, you know, legally as well. But going with the murderers and all that, illegal, of course. People do have a habit of selling body organs on the black market for thousands of dollars. So it could have been that motive as well for money, given East End was the poorest neighborhood near around London. So Jack the Ripper might have had an ulterior motive of, I'm going to murder these people and also get some good money from selling their some of their organs. That way, you know, he can sustain his body as he murders more people to take organs from. Yeah, because um, with Annie Chapman, that was the first victim in the canonical five whose intestines was like completely removed from her body. So it's just kind kind of like, um, I think when the body was taken for autopsy by the doctor, he had observed that it was removed from the body so cleanly that it had to have been done by a doctor who had anatomical knowledge. So that could be one of the reasons why. Which kind of gets into something I'm going to be talking about a little bit later. Okay. Um, this man named George Chapman, but I will be talking about him in my section at the, towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> and the next one in line, actually, people suspect that this one was cut abruptly where because uh, Elizabeth Strider was the uh, woman that was murdered next. This happened in a, also the later half of September, on September 30th, where her body was found at 1 a.m. on... Um, Dewfield's yard off Burner Street, and her throat had been cut, but no real other injuries, which led people to say, though, the murder might have been interrupted by a noise in an alleyway or something that caused attention that he didn't really like too much, and so he decided to run and wasn't able to do what else bad things he might have had intended for um, the person. Yeah, because um, with Elizabeth Stride, it was just her throat that was cut, but no disembowelment had taken place. And by this point, with Annie Chapman, how come it, the disembowelment happened with her, but not with Elizabeth Stride? Yeah. Yeah, these, these inconsistencies definitely complicate the case a lot more. Um, and the interrelations between the murders, too, it makes it more complicated to figure out exactly who did it and what were the motives behind it. I just know he was upset that he got interrupted. He's like, I got yeah. one, and I couldn't get the second uterus. <laughs> yeah. This is not fair. Which is not another, fair. It's another big thing. Maybe it was, you know, circumstance or the time that he did it. Maybe there was something that was prohibiting him from going as far as he wished. Maybe there was a person or something that maybe stopped him, which mm-hmm. could also be another theory also to behind like why he didn't do things with certain people when he did things with other people you know mm-hmm. yeah because not only was he interrupted with elizabeth stride but i think it was in the same night that he claimed another victim right? ah uh, yes the um i double checked just to make sure i didn't put a typo in but it was indeed catherine eddowes was also murdered that same night her body was found in miles um not mile Mitri square i think is how you pronounce that in london at 1 45 a.m just four or five minutes after Elizabeth Strider's body was found. But this time, he was able to complete his task as the savagery had increased so much that the killer targeted her face and took her uterus and left kidney. I'm sure, that's probably go for a good price on the black market. He might have been selling it on. Yeah. Um, do we know how far away the two locations were from each other? Um, I did not find any concrete evidence as to that. I think it was like two streets away. Was it just two streets? That makes so much sense. Yeah, if I got interrupted the first time, I'm just going to go find another one. Right, given that the times have been so close, (laughs) I would have had to have thought it would have been close, but I wasn't exactly sure as to the exact uh, distance. And also I just want to comment on how just 
how how determined Jack the Ripper had to have been, right? Because his job got interrupted with Elizabeth Stride, then he quickly finds his second victim and then does the thorough job of all of the markers that we associate with Jack the Ripper, like his signature as the killer and how he, I guess, mutilates his victims after he claims them. I'm telling you, he was upset that he didn't get that uterus, so he took a kidney in retaliation. (laughs) He's like, I was going away with two... I'll figure out the second one. <laughs> yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. kind of like is telling of I guess he really um wanted to escalate the murder too because he was always already like, oh, the police immediately ran to find Elizabeth Stride and there maybe they were like wandering around the street trying to find the culprit, hope hopefully thinking that he was still there, which he was. But he was just like, you know what? I think I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to take a kidney. I'm going to take the womb and everything. Definitely. Yeah, and they still didn't catch him. He was emboldened by that fact. And the savagery only increased in this next one. Mary Kelly was the last canonical confirmed victim of Jack the Ripper when she was murdered on November 9th. And this time the savagery had increased so much so that her body had been virtually skinned to the bone with, uh, from Jack the Ripper. And her body was Yummy. found in Miller's Court <laughs> off Dorset Street at 10.45 p.m. So probably the earliest known killing that Jack the Ripper ever did at 10.45 p.m. So I'm surprised nobody really caught that. Yeah, I wonder why he chose to do it so late in the morning. Mm. Normally it's like at night. You mean, kind of how you said he was emboldened by a lot of the murders prior. Maybe he was getting more bold as he was going on, you know? Getting cocky. He's like, oh, these guys can't catch me then. I'm sure they can't catch me now. Exactly. There also was just such a big gap between the last murder and then Mary Kelly that I feel like he was just so, like, desperate for a kill at that point. He wasn't really thinking through his, like, plan, his pattern. He was just like, I need, I haven't been getting it. I need it. That's an interesting, like, point to make there. Like, um, was he really thinking straight when he carried out any of these murders? Were they just um, in the thrill of the moment, too? And also, like, the previous murders before Mary Kelly, they were happening, like, really, really early morning while it was still dark out or, like, you know, late into the night. So it raises the question, did Jack the Ripper, like... Did he proposition these women? Because um, I think most of them were prostitutes, were they not? Yes, most of them were prostitutes. Right. So was that how he was able to get them alone in a dark alley way and kind of get them to lower their defenses? And then that was when he struck? I would have to imagine that definitely would be the case, given that that's how it worked in East End. And nobody, again, knows who Jack the Ripper was. So we could very easily assume he probably took on the mantle of just a guy wanting to have a fun night. And... And, of course, the ulterior motives happened, and the women ended up dead. Right. Yeah. So I guess, are we ready to start heading into the theories of who Jack the Ripper might be? Um, yeah. I can take you through some fun things I found. I will give you my takes on who he could be. Starting with, I feel like the most outlandish one, but the most fun, I think is that he was actually H.H. Holmes, who was, who was infant, infamous for his murder castle in Chicago. Um, to give you a little background on who he is, it was uh, created, this murder castle, to lure young women looking for a place to stay while visiting the World Fair and other fun things over there, and to kill them in he killed them with very, very creative ways, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> creative. <laughs> <laughs> he had secret rooms and passages that led to gas chambers and acid pits where he then mutilated or just dissolved the bodies. Um, he also had a little hidden human-sized oven, like if you've ever seen Sweeney Todd, that is exactly what it is, um, to dispose of the bodies that he didn't want anymore. But if he did want them, he had enough medical knowledge to go ahead and just take everything but their skeleton off and sell the skeletons to science. What would he do with the intestines then and everything else besides the skeleton? I just, I couldn't really find an answer on that, but I would assume 
probably in that oven. Cook it right up. Yeah, just kind of evaporating <laughs> off of the skeleton. <laughs> um, that he, just kind of makes me wonder, like, how have how did people not notice that something was going on at his hotel at the World's yeah. Fair, right? Like with those huge ovens, I'm sure the smell would have to be unbearable. I mean, it is Chicago. Oh, I yeah. wouldn't put okay. it past them. <laughs> it's yeah. Chicago in the just 1800s. another Tuesday in Chicago, 1800s. <laughs> like I wouldn't put it past him. Anyways, it's the World Fair. Like there's no con- like really telephone to. notify your relatives where you are it's you just go and he knew very well to pick young women that were just there for a good time and unfortunately their good time ended not so good for them not so good no (laughs) (laughs) he ended up confessing to 27 murders but it was suspected that it was over 200 wow ranging from the time period 1893 to 1896 which mm-hmm. is a riot of a time to kill 200 people <laughs> he was back to back with that one yeah um and he he actually got the castle by conning an old woman and her husband into just giving it to him they just oh. paid for everything and his little advancements as he called it this is an upstanding young man trying to be an entrepreneur and we're going to give him what he needs to kind of get started (laughs) it was it was told that he conned them so that it would be finished just around the world fair as soon as that opened his was done and they just really didn't suspect anything of these fun little advancement as he calls it and wow that's crazy he did it over such a long time just taking these old people's money and wow. to make sure that no one suspected anything he would change crews every time yeah. and it was just a wild way to get that started yeah. that is crazy and then his murder spree started <laughs> and then he just went through he's like i'm ready time to start my new hobby in murdering people in giant ovens (laughs) don't forget the acid and the acid Hansel and Gretel stuff right there (laughs) yeah literally (laughs) so the major claim that Jack the Ripper is actually H.H. Holmes was that the great great grandson of Holmes Jeff Mudgett which is a funny name in my opinion. (laughs) He is very, very certain that they were the same person with having a diary from Holmes stating that um, they were actually Jack the Ripper. Like he, Holmes just admitted it was Jack the Ripper, which I don't really know how much I trust about that. He, there's a quote from whitechapeljack.com that says, according to Mudgett, the diaries describe training training sessions between Holmes and his assistant, which I could not find any other, any other notices of his assistant, which leads me to believe that that one wasn't the most certain, but it was instructed to, he was instructed to murder prostitutes and mutilate their bodies, which is very similar to Jack the Ripper's whole motive in that sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, yeah, and it was said that he har- harvested organs of the upper-class women. So mm. I guess when he was training his assistant, like his diary said, they just went for lower-class women because there's less risk involved, especially if you're just training. But that was... And these lower-class women, they were also coming from the World's Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, sometimes you just got to go explore, even though you definitely <laughs> yeah. shouldn't explore on your own. Yeah. yeah. But that was like prime time too, you know, because like East End was the perfect hunting ground for Jack the Ripper because it was super bad and the police were already like just giving up hope over there. Well, I guess giving up hope wasn't it. It was just they made the decision that it was beyond hope and they mm-hmm. just needed to crack down hard. Yeah. And I guess not really have the good interests of East End in their mind when they were conducting yeah, arrests. Yeah, I, I touch on it a little later on why Jack the Ripper would even feel the need to leave um, 
the UK, and it was from a very specific cop called Sir Charles Warren. And he was known to be not the smartest, but very, very thorough in his work. He was well-respected by his peers. And while he did have terrible PR handling that entire case, he was, like, very adamant on catching the killer and, like, really wasn't letting him have any sort of break, which I feel like Jack got worried that he was, like, getting really close, the case was going in Walt Warren's favor, which, I mean, if I feel like I was doing so well, I was getting it, and then this cop comes and he's like, I'ma get you. Yep. See ya. Yeah, see ya. <laughs> and there is a recorded passenger of H. Holmes traveling from the UK to the US at that time. But just to put it out there, Holmes's name was Herman Webster Mudgett. So Herman Webster Mudgett. Interesting. <laughs> Good to know. And that's, I guess, part of the reason why he fled the UK was to leave his previous name behind him. I mean, he I was, would too. <laughs> he was mostly fleeing Mudgett, if we're going with the Jack the Ripper was actually H.H. Yeah. Holmes route. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. That is a wild name. He's like, I got a cool killer name. I got to yeah. make my own name now. And you know what? That actually ties into one of the letters, the Dear Boss letter, where mm-hmm. um, he actually dubs himself Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Yeah, um, that was in the newspapers, yeah. too. And, every, you know, and this was also just what was happening with the Jack the Ripper case in general. The public actually became so morbidly curious about the case that they wanted to follow it and, you know, eventually, hopefully, put their trust in the police to, to catch the killer, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. just because, like, the nature of these killings were so brutal and also the newspaper didn't really have a lot of censorship back in the mm-hmm. day. So, uh, If any. I, mm, if any, which was probably zero because <laughs> we, we associate Jack the Ripper with the particularly gruesome picture of the last of the canonical five, who was that? Mary... The last of the canonical five was Mary Kelly. Mary Kelly. And um, yes. who had, you had said, was virtually skinned and disemboweled. And that was just in the newspaper. Just plain as day for anybody to see. Yeah, I just, I feel like that's gross. Um, <laughs> as, yeah. Like, to touch on the Dear Boss letter again, um, one similarity between the handwriting between the two people of Holmes and Jack oh. was that they had very similar handwriting. So that Dear Boss letter made it look a little bit like it could have been both of them. And then going on with the rest of the similarities between them, like they obviously both specialized in killing women of the same age or around, like they were all poor women who they could take advantage of. Um, they had psychopathic tendencies, which I feel like is very known. I don't for many killers, I would say. It's very known. I just don't think I would go skinning people if I wasn't a little bit crazy. But um, and they both had like really good medical knowledge. Surprisingly, like mm-hmm. they were both. Their murders were shown that they were very educated in medicine and, like, the anatomy of the bodies, especially with um, Jared saying how Jack took the organs straight out of their body, very clean, very pristine. Um, and especially that clean cut to de- almost decapitate a woman. Yeah. yeah, and then he just kind of lost his nerve for some reason and just... I guess decapitation was, like, off his list. That was a hard no for him. But when it came to intestines, he was just like, oh, yeah, I'll take those. I can take Those are mine now. (laughs) And then especially with Holmes mutilating and just taking their skeletons off to science, like, it very much is gruesome ways to kill people as well as, like, that cleaning of a skeleton is very, very hard. You would definitely have to have medical training to be able to accomplish that yeah like uh, no um one another similarity that is very very loose a loose definition is that they looked the same in the sense where 
their descriptions were brown eyes and brown hair. Which could be anybody. Which is, anybody. Which is a big portion of the population, so we can't take that too much, but you know. Yeah, but it is there. <laughs> they were really like grasping for straws, trying to get a profile on Jack the Ripper yeah. back then. Yeah. Like, oh, black, brown eyes and brown hair, that's what a lot of people have. So maybe we'll, we'll cast out the net and then hopefully yeah. narrow it down, but mm-hmm. it never that never happened yeah. because he fled. <laughs> he, he said, see ya. Peace. <laughs> and, and so that's that theory but I have another theory that me and Brennan are actually going to talk about um, is George Chapman so I'm going to go ahead and give you his Britain experiences and then when we get to Brennan's section of it he'll give him your Amer- he'll give him he'll give you his American experiences <laughs> so who was George Chapman well he was actually Severian Kalazowski, which I would change my name to. Uh, (laughs) He changed his name from that and then became a junior surgeon in Poland in 1887. He moved to London to work as a hairdresser, and his hairdressing, like, his hairdressing location was next to Whitechapel Street, which is where one of the murders took place. And his motive, however, as a killer, was to marry women and then poison them and try again. <laughs> he, oh. uh, before he <laughs> took a little spin in America, he married Lucy Banderski and then just dipped. <laughs> wow, left her on the altar. He, he, like, married her for a good while oh, okay. and then was like, <laughs> I'm done. I'm going to go hop over to America for a little bit. <laughs> Um, and so when he came back to Britain, he just decided he wanted a different woman as his wife and married Annie Chapman, which is where he got his last name from. He, he, it was apparent that he liked the way it sounded so much, he just decided it was his now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, and then he then married a different woman named Mary Spink, but she was very suspiciously murdered on Christmas in 1897. And then after that, he just picked a new woman called Bessie Taylor, and she died suspiciously in February 1901. Just a string of women married and then suspiciously There's one more. There's one more. (laughs) Okay. He married Maud Marsh, and she died in October 1902. And this is actually where he messed up, because the family was very, very interested <laughs> in how this lady died. Oh. They were like, I just don't, I just don't believe so. So they actually made her body get exhumed and had an autopsy where they found poison in her system. That's where he messed up. He, he, he married a woman up. whose family loved her too much. I know, right? He <laughs> he said, I like this one. Maybe I can kill her easy. Nope. <laughs> nope. Um, he was eventually arrested and convicted, which of like all the murders, because he definitely killed every single one of that ladies, mm-hmm. um, and executed on April 7th, 1903. And I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and turn it over to Brennan so he can tell you his American stuff. Okay. Um, so to begin, before I start talking about George Chapman and my section, I kind of want to give a little bit of background behind why he might, he's assumed to be the um, doctor for in America. Um, so I'm going to talk about a woman named Carrie Brown. Um, so Carrie Brown, she was, she, was a, um, she was a prostitute in the um, Upper East Side of New York City, and she was murdered in 1891, almost three years after the original string of murders that happened in the UK. Um, the, the, the causes of death were rather similar to all the cases that happened over in the UK, as at least the um, incidents that happened over there. Um, and uh, a lot of the pro- uh, profiles matched, um, a lot of the profiles that were on her matched the profiles of the previous victims. A lot, there was a lot of similarities between how they were murdered, a lot of, br- a lot of similar brutalities between the murders. So um, a, little, a little synopsis of what happened up to her, up to her death. Um, so basically, uh, around 10.30, she had met, um, Carrie met up with this man at the bar, and she was very intoxicated, um, which made her appear in a very good mood at the time. 
Um, Me so too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so following so following this and leaving the bar, she met up with a mystery man at the East Rivers Hotel sometime, at sometime between 10.45 and 11 p.m., um, where basically both the men and Carrie, um, they proceeded past the housekeeper of the hotel. Her name was Mary Minter, um, who's, and she plays a role in the story a little bit later on. But they proceed to the top floor to a separate room away from the hotel that's rather separated from the other hotel rooms and where she was then found dead. So um, some details to mention that are rather important, I feel like, in this mystery. Um, there was no screams or sounds heard, but that's not too out of the ordinary considering there was no screams heard in really any of the murders that took place. So that kind of uh, follows suit. Um, Mary, Mary Minter, the housekeeper, she saw the killer enter with Carrie, and she just and she gave a description. Um, to um, and the description that was given of George Chapman almost matched per, um, perfectly, so that also kind of lines up. So, what um, was the description then? It was, I believe. Let me see. I believe that there was a hat. There was a derby hat. I believe he was rather short. He, she matched the hair color. I believe she said it was brown, um, but the description she gave was very similar to what. Um, you know, um, George Chapman looked like at the time. Did he have the funny little mustache? Yeah, he had the <laughs> he had the funny little mustache. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, oh, it was also really important to mention that she also um, said that she could not identify his accent. Apparently, he had a foreign accent, which would make sense considering George Chapman, you know, um, is from you know the UK. <laughs> I mean, but she but she said that her guess was something like a German accent. But she, she was not for sure just because she just couldn't really identify it. But she only really encountered that for a brief moment in the in you know the lobby. Um, yeah, but Carrie was found in a similar manner to other victims. Like I said before, there were stab wounds and slashes all over her body. There was also really interesting, really interesting that they found a cross carved into the side of her thigh. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that's a new one. We haven't heard about that yet, but you know that's deliberate. That is deliberate. Yeah, he had a grudge. He did have a grudge, and also the cross, that's obviously religious imagery. Um, and, you know, when we think about Jack the Ripper and how he mainly targeted prostitutes, when he fled from UK to New York, yeah. did he just kind of, like, he was, like, so far progressed in his serial killer mindset that he was just like, yeah, what I'm doing, like, is righteous and is yeah. deserved on my victims, and now I'm going to start, like, leaving behind more clues because this is what I really believe and I need the world to know. Because it could match up with, like, the um, prostitutes and all that, with him thinking it's unholy, immoral, not, again, not you know, doesn't, it's not a good lifestyle to be living. And it could tie in with the cross that was carved into um, Carrie Brown. Yeah, that's right. a good point. Yeah. Like, that whole moral sense is something not really talked about with the murders, and I think that's a really good connection. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. Um, let me see. So, like it says, um, and, uh, the timeline of George Chapman also is really suspicious, considering everything almost lines up perfectly with how everything worked out. Because, you know, the original murders happened in 1988, and then he happened to move to New York the same year that the murder of Carrie Brown happened in a very similar manner. And then he moved and he moved back to um, London, I believe it was three years later. And and then he murdered the three the three wives, or I think it was three I believe it was three or four yeah. with mm -hmm. poison. Um, but yeah, um, that's also it's really suspicious how perfectly that kind of lines up, you know. Mm -hmm. right. But it also brings up a good point that you know, how do you go from brutally slashing someone to poisoning someone? Because, I mean, that is something that you have to, have to bring up. You know, why did he murder his wives so much differently than the previous suspects? Was it because of different profiles, you know, different lifestyles? Maybe because they were prostitutes, he felt that they deserved something different than how he, you know, how he murdered his wives. Um, that is something important that you should, um, you should talk about. Uh, yeah, because on that line, um, I wonder if he was taking into account a lot of society's expectations. So, and he was like forcing that onto women and kind of like categorizing them in mm -hmm. a way where like, okay, he's marrying these women. That's on, right off of the bat a little bit strange because if a serial killer targets these women and does these grotesque things to their bodies after they're dead, why would he go on to treat women with respect to eventually earn their hand in marriage? Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Like maybe in his mind, he thinks that they're a respectable woman and women who don't deserve his respect. It's very entitled in a way. Yeah. Um, So it makes sense considering his mindset. You know, he was very obviously not mentally stable. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, so it makes sense that he would he would think kind of have that thought process. You know, of how certain people deserve respect from him, and you know, might lead to the causes of why he end up doing the, you know, the murdering in the first place. Maybe it could have been as simple as he just wanted to change up his game. Maybe he got tired of just stabbing brutally and viciously at his people. Maybe he wanted <laughs> to so say, you know, I'll take, a, I'll take a thing at poison. Let's see how that goes. Let's see how the long game plays out. He's and diversi- it really didn't work. <laughs> I think he's diversifying his resume in the serial killer department. <laughs> he's like, let's see how many boxes I can check off. Yeah. Well, I also think it's really important to point out that he had a, an immense surgical background. Which, as we mentioned prior, um, some of the, I, I forget who, which victim exactly we talked about, but the way that her organs were removed, it that was re- Annie Chapman, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it required, um, you know, it required some form of um, surgical, uh, you know, background to be able to pull that off, you know. So, uh, I think that's also really important to bring up, also as well. Let me see. Yeah. Um, but uh, moving on to the topic a little bit, I think it's also important to talk about how the police play the role in the murders themselves. You know, there's, a, um, there, there's possibly a Scotland Yard conspiracy that may have been set up mm-hmm. because Scotland Yard, you know, with such complicated murders, they couldn't, they weren't, they didn't have a lot of leads. So they, it was believed that perhaps they might have lost evidence, perhaps to, you know, get the. Um, get all the blame off of them yeah. because it would be really embarrassing for the for you know the UK as a whole if they let you know Dr. Brigitte to a separate continent and without catching him. So yeah. that really might- brings up how I like said that they handled PR terribly. Like mm-hmm. they handled that investigation so bad, which was so weird because they were so engaged in finding him. So in what way did they fail with the PR? Did things just get out before they wanted to the public to know it? Yeah, they just, everything was in that newspaper. No one, no one vetted that newspaper. And then everyone was like, we already know how he did it. You can't really interview anybody. Right. Yeah, that's also important. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to talk about the possibility of a copycat killer. Because, I mean, you know, like you said, publicity was very major time and word spread, you know, very fast, especially through, you know, things like publication. So it's very it's very possible that someone may have seen something from the UK and America and were like, was like, and took inspiration and just did it on their own. But it's also rather difficult to rule that out exactly because there's this, this a how little, um, you know, this, like how little searching they did during in this case and how little just like, you know, trying to find the murder, like, like the U- New York PD, they did not really do that much work towards the case because, you know, like Carrie Brown, she was a prostitute, so she was not seen as a important figure, I guess, in society, mm-hmm. so they did not put that much attention into the case. So yeah. therefore, you know, it's really hard to rule out whether copycat killing was even a possibility. But I think it's also important just to keep that in the back of your mind as well, it's because, I mean, that is definitely a possibility. It's hard to rule out. Um, which kind of leads me into, like, one of my final points that I was going to talk about, um, which is the New York police incompetence. They, like I said, you know, she was not, she did not have a high social status, so she was kind of, you know, her case was kind of pushed on the rug a little bit almost because, I mean, they, they and what they, what they were looking for, they were looking for a direct motive. The police, they wanted something that was like, you know, cause effect. They, they didn't, they didn't even <laughs> so want to, fair of them. yeah, they didn't even <laughs> want to consider the fact that this could be a serial killer because that would com- make things so much more complex to talk about, you know, it would complex the case so much more and so much more difficult. And, you know, because they didn't really value, I guess, Carrie Brown as, as her role in society, they didn't really emphasize it in their cases. And therefore, they just kind of were pinning it on people that were easy suspects, you know. I think they locked up a man. Um, his name was Amir Ben Ali for eleven years, with very little evidence actually pointing to him. But because he, but because he was in the hotel at the same time, um, they just connected some dots and locked him up because it was the easiest suspect. You wow. know? Those are some yeah. very, very stretched out dots. I feel yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> no, they just found an easy target and were just like, okay, we can lock up this guy and just kind of forget about this case because I mean, Carrie Brown being a prostitute, this isn't someone worth spending so much time and energy over. Yeah. Um, they just wanted to get it over with yeah. and then move on to more important things, mm-hmm. probably. Definitely. And I think it's crazy, too, because they had, um, like I said, the 
um, Housekeeper at the time gave almost an, an exact description of Jack the Ripper, and that was, um, you know, he was roughly five feet eight inches, slim and long build with the mustache like you talked about. And then, <laughs> and then His funny der- little mustache. Yeah. And then the derby hat. They had this exact description, but they didn't even pursue that at all in any way, which is kind of insane considering they had a direct description of the man, but they didn't even do anything with that description because they just didn't care enough to go into it. That's just so dumb because, I mean, like, if I saw that as one of the likely suspects for a serial killer with the derby hat and the mustache, that just seems (laughs) like like they grew out that mustache on purpose just to kind of, (laughs) you know, disguise themselves a little bit, especially with the derby hat, you know, when we think about, like, um, Jack the Ripper going out at night and finding the victim so that, it's in under the cover of darkness, right? And he can't be seen and he can't be caught. Spooky Can scary. he just make a yep, spooky scary. Yeah, spooky scary. Skeletons <laughs> like in <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Literally. So Yeah, but as far as um George Chapman, I mean, I think he definitely is a plausible theory. There are some disconnections, but also I feel like and some inconsistencies like, you know, how the murders were done. But also, I mean serial killers are complex beings so we can't you know they're so consistency isn't really in their nature all the time mm-hmm. you know and we can't really rule out just because it's something's different doesn't mean it wasn't you know the same person yeah so right. yeah yeah so i guess between um both hh H. holmes and george chapman what do you think jared who is the most likely person to be jack the ripper i personally sub- uh, subscribe to the hh H. holmes theory i think it just has <laughs> yes. the most connectivity to everything <laughs> I feel like the timeline matches up very well, especially with his killings and all of that, with this kind of the same stylized uh, view. And the, but the, especially with the um, medical knowledge that both of them had, well, assume that um, Ripper had given how he, died, you know, pretty much dissected his victims and took their organs. We had to have a very extensive background knowledge in, me- in the medical field. Okay. Yeah. And just to throw a bone uh, Brennan's way, I definitely think, (laughs) just genuinely too, that it's probably George Chapman. I think the inconsistency of the killing and also just kind of getting into his head a little bit and kind of seeing why he enacted these killings the way that he did, it definitely had to have been him. Like, he got away with it pretty well, I think. And also just his history of moving around a lot too, tracks. Yeah, definitely. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) so there it is jack the ripper guys thank you so much for listening yours truly jack the ripper all right 